Greetings, you fantastic individuals, and welcome to episode four of the Battle of the Ley Lines, the final chronicle. I'm sorry for the delay on this episode. Um, one day I'll get a regular release schedule, but it seems like today is not the day, and it seems that day is not going to happen soon, so you know the drill. If you want more info about what's going on, sign up to our newsletter or our website or check out our socials. I try and keep them up to date. If you like what we're doing here and want to give us some advice, scream at us or just tell us you love us, drop us a rating or review or a comment. I would, you know, appreciate the feedback, as they say. For this episode of the Battle of the Ley Lines, I'd like to thank our incredible cast, James Hare, David McCran, Helen Berry, Kitty Bennett, Linda Dutz, and Sam Perry, Vicky Holding, and Alex Gardner. I'd like to also thank our amazing editor, Ellen Glynch. Seriously, she's a saint. She has to put up with me. And our composer, Dennis Moen, who is a musical genius. And hey, thanks to you too, you know? Another corridor inside the Baron's castle. Adamant stands on the threshold of the armory, up on the first floor, surveying it with dismay. There is only one single billhock hanging on the wall. Adamant closes the door, sighing. He sets off along the corridor and pauses by a window where he sees the green-hued monk in the garden below. Adamant presses his nose to the window. Him! He sets off pell-mell down the corridor. Outside the Shrine of the Bone, in the courtyard of it, it is daytime. Mother Euphemia, with her priestesses, Sister Patience, Mavis and Bluster, are mounting their donkeys and checking their panniers. Abba hurries out to see them off. Well, have an uneventful journey, Mother Euphemia, and arrive safely back. Thank you, Abba. And thank you for your kind hospitality and for seeing to my foot as well. Oh, you're most welcome, Mother. Surgery is really only my sideline these days. There is so much more money to be made from guilt than disease. <laughs> Mother Euphemia turns her donkey's head to the way they want to go. You know the way to the Priory, then? Oh, I'm fairly sure that I do, Abba. Farewell. May the light of the sun shine upon you. She makes the sign of the sun, and Abba returns it. Farewell, my children. The four priestesses ride away. The front sweep outside of the priory. It is dusk as the priestesses ride up the front track. Ah, feels like home. It's very dark and scary, though. Always was. You sun sisters get scared easily. Mavis trots up to the abbess. There should be plenty of beds, Mother, because the top floor wasn't really damaged. But it's a good job we brought our own clean bedding. Um, though we had to pay the abbot to use their laundry. I suppose the abbot has to make ends meet. At least we have something to eat as well. Mavis and I pay for that too, and then discovered they were the provisions they had brought along. Anyway, mother. The abbess nods, sighs, stops, gets off her donkey and rubs her rear gingerly. We can put the donkeys in the old stable, around the back, mother. There might even be a bit of hay left over there for them. Thank you, my child. Come on, Sister Patience. The abbess leads her donkey around the corner of the building with the others still riding. My poor ass seems to be in pain. Riding for a while will do that, dear. Poor things. No wonder they look so sad all the time, with their big eyes and floppy ears. 
Bluster squints at her and Mavis rolls her eyes. I think you will find these are donkeys, Sister Patience. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr Donkey. You're not an ass at all. Can have a donkey that's an ass too, especially the ones that bite. Hmm? Morag's bedroom inside the Baron's castle. It is daytime. Morag is throwing clothes, knives, blankets, etc. into his saddlebag. Burb is standing near to him with his hands on his hips, angrily. But I'm 13 now! You're still a kid and I can't endanger you. Besides, Louisa and your mother would kill me if anything happened to you. But I'm your squire. You can't fight a dragon without a squire. You would endanger me. Because I couldn't just get on and fight the brute as I would have to be looking out for you all the time. No, no. I'll stay out of the way and just hold the horses. Uh, honest, honest. Morag swings the saddlebags over his shoulders. But I've already said. I'll tell Weesa you're going to fight a dragon. Oh, for pity's sake. <sighs> right. You can hold the horses. But you have to stay in the valley below, you hear? Burb starts to hop up and down with excitement. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I will, I will. I'll only hold the horses. <laughs> A dragon. Yeah. Morag grabs him by the tunic and lifts Burb up to his face. And not a word to Wisa or your mother or anyone. Do you hear? We're going for a hunting trip. Yes, yes. I hear, I hear. Morag drops him. Burb executes a mad little dance of glee in a circle. Morag sighs, rolls his eyes, adjusts the bags over his shoulders and starts to stalk out. Oh, come on then. We'll get your stuff. Burb stops dancing, nods his head and then races past him. The dining hall inside the Baron's castle. It is daytime. The family are at the table, starting their breakfast. Morag and Burb enter with their saddlebags. The family looks up in inquiry. Morag bows to the Baron, the Baroness, and nods, smiling at Uisa. Uh, my lord, Baroness, Uisa, uh, would you please excuse my absence for a couple of days, my lord, as I have need of a little time to fetch a present for my betrothed. He smiles again at Uisa, who smiles spoonily back at him. Uh, certainly, your highness, but where are you going to... Uh, oh, he's just going to a certain valley to get a special rare flower that only grows at certain times and is good luck for new brides, you know. It is? I mean, yes, yes, it is. Are you getting flower picking as well, Burb? Well, I thought I'd go and help him with, you know, flower spotting, sort of, because, like, I am his squire, you know. Yeah, don't we all know? Well... See you both back soon, then. Do get some supplies from Cook and have a hot meal in the evening. Morag bows. Uh, thank you, ma'am, sir. He turns and smiles at you, Issa. Goodbye, my lady, Issa. Make sure you don't go near Dead Bent. That place is very dangerous, and I want my groom to come home in one piece. She winks suggestively at him. Yeah, don't worry, Issa. I'll be careful. Not you! My bridegroom! Burb pulls a disgusted face behind Morag. Morag bows and they head off. Country lane. It's daytime. Burb is riding a few paces ahead of Morag and is peering concentratedly into the bushes either side of the lane. He beckons to Morag. 
Yeah, yeah, it's safe. It's safe. I know it is. The villagers said the lair is at the head of the valley and that the dragon's hibernating at the moment anyway. Thank you, Burp. But I've got to be the vanguard. No, you don't. I don't need one. Thank you, Burp. Burp thrusts out his bottom lip, turns his horse's head and goes around to a few paces behind Morag. Oh, OK. Uh, oh, I'll be the rear guard then. Burp starts staring into the trees behind Morag, concentratedly with his tongue sticking out. Yeah, keep this up and you'll have to guard your own rear. At the head of the valley, Morag stops his horse and Burb stiffens with excitement and stops too. Morag looks up at the head of the valley and sees the cave entrance. Burb looks and points. Is that it? I bet that's it. Oh, you think? So, the dragon's in that one then. I'll set up camp. Uh, presumably, but be quiet. Don't do that. But you said that I had to stay with the camp away from the dragon. I can't stay with the camp if there is no camp, and I was... Shut up, you damn brat! Don't set up camp right in the dragon's doorstep. Take the horses away down into the woods under cover. Burb ignores this and stares at the cave. Smoke is slowly curling out of it. Do you think he's asleep? A small rock falls down in the cave mouth, causing Burb to jump in fear. Oh, not for very long with you around! He realises his mistake and slaps his hands over his mouth. Ominous rumblings come from the cave. Both of them freeze and then turn their heads slowly and stare up at the cave entrance. At the mouth of the dragon's cave... Morag is standing in the mouth of the cave, a bit out of breath with climbing up the rock face. He looks back down the valley below, and Burb waves back to him. Morag squares his shoulders and marches in. There is silence, then a roar and a wall of flame comes out of the cave. Burb cautiously pokes his head around the entrance. He sees nothing, so slowly creeps in with his back against the wall. Burb sees Morag propped up against the dragon's belly. He freezes. Morag is covered with blood and cradling a cauldron. Cauldron is glowing weirdly as blood from Morag's shoulder and arm injuries drip into it. The dragon has a sword rammed through its mouth and into its head. It's clear that there has been a brutal battle. Burb rushes to Morag, pulling bandages out of his little satchel. inside the convent laundry. It's daytime. There are two priestesses working at tubs. Sister Blodwin is wringing out clothes by hand and then hanging them to dry. She stops to wipe her brow and take a breath. The water is running off her hands and the sun is gleaming on her arms. A priestess is watching her from behind. This new priestess is hiding her face behind her sleeve but looks distinctly not very feminine. This priestess now sidles up to Blodwin and murmurs in her ear. Ah, beautiful woman. You are out here ringing laundry. I would much prefer if you were ringing me. Now, now. <laughs> Sister Berkwald, don't be silly. Sister Blodwin looks around surreptitiously. You'd enjoy it too much, you wretched demon. The priestess drops her sleeve, revealing a very handsome middle-aged man. 
He is wearing leather under the outer priest robe. He looks at her with mock puppy eyes. Oh, beloved, you wring my heart already. It would only be a step up. Nah, you don't deserve it. She puts the squeezed chemise on the table and goes to pick up another. Oz squeezes her hand and kisses his way up her arm, then winks at her. Then call me your Oz, and yes, I am your slave forever, my mistresses. Plodwin is not impressed, and as he aims a kiss for her face, she rams the soap bar into his mouth. Oz tries to bite it sexily, but fails, dying in laughter and bubbles. Plodwin also can't resist laughing. They both lean on each other, cackling. You ruddy inky and you... Kinks, I'm worried that Botwaga is going to get found out. How he now he lives here all time, it's only a matter of time before he's caught. Oh, don't worry. You can tell them he's basically a priest. Anyway, sister on Botwaga isn't interested in women. He hated his job. He is only interested in the cooking. Oz tries to grab her again, but Blodwin pulls his hood over his eyes and playfully punches him, somewhat winding him. Oof! oof, Magnificent, my lady! Give me more of your playfulness. Blodwin rolls her eyes and goes back to the laundry. Yeah, well, try telling that to Mother Euphemia if she finds out. Inside Morag's bedroom in the Baron's castle. It's daytime. Morag limps into his room. He is wearing his big cloak and seems to be leaning on Burb. As soon as the door closes behind them, Morag sags into Burb so much that the boy almost falls over. Burb manages to pitch him onto the bed. The cloak falls back and we see that he is injured rather badly. I need more lizard murdering practice. How's the cauldron looking? Burb opens up the saddlebag he was also carrying and gawps in horror at the contents. What? Uh, your blood has melted it. <gasps> Are you some kind of monster? Huh? Morag struggles to sit up. Show me. Burb brings over the bag to Morag. They both stare at the cauldron. It is, in fact, broken and melted. Oh, hell. Now I have to find another wedding present. <sighs> he collapses back on the bed. Oh, don't worry. I stuffed loads of the jewels into the saddlebags while you was resting. He pulls out a diamond necklace, swings it about and grins. Outside in the courtyard of the Baron's castle, it's daytime. Adamant is removing his saddle and then his blanket and livery cloth from his horse. His mother and Imelda enter from the curtain wall door heading towards a keep door when they see him. Adamant smiles and nods as the Baroness walks towards him. Hello, my dear. Oh, hello, Marta. Have Burb and Morag come back from flower picking yet? Oh, yes. Burb said that Morag was lying down as he was a little fatigued. From flower picking? That's not very heroic. Why do you want him? I've just come from the village and wanted to ask him and Quinn what they think about these demons suddenly appearing. They are getting worse, you know. Adamant starts to speak but is interrupted by his mother. You should ask your father what he thinks. No, mother. He'll only go roaring around the place, and all because of some piffling local problems that could be sorted with a bit of common sense. Well, he'll be roaring anyway soon if I haven't fed him. Come on, Imelda. 
inside the priory's kitchen. It is evening. By the light of a few candles, the four priestesses are eating their rations. There are books and scrolls all over the dusty tables. Patience is looking very depressed and the other sisters don't look very happy at all. I really hope that we're wrong about this. Well, if one key is broken, it would be a good idea to check on the others. The abbess gestures towards a small book next to her. Well, since we found that diary, we now know about the moon, the iron, the gold and the spirit. But we still don't know where or what the sun key is, which is most embarrassing. And we still don't know how I can protect keys and locks somewhere in the Brethnax castle, an elven altar somewhere up in Shreem, and a gold cauldron in some dragon's lair. Somewhere! Don't worry, dear. You aren't alone. We're all going to work to find these keys and ensure their safety. I have found a ritual mentioned in one of the old books of the Moon Legends. It seems that as long as one key is left, even if all the other keys are broken and the lines are unlocked, you can purify and rededicate the other keys back and lock the lines down again. See, Patience? There is hope. I was not looking forward to asking the gods of the sun and the moon to make another set because we wasn't careful with the first one. Inside the library at the Priory, it's daytime. Sister Bluster is sweeping the library floor and picking up papers and books from the floor, putting them back on the shelves. Mavis is up a ladder, reading a book, and Patience and Mother Euphemia are sitting at a big table, studying books that are piled up by their elbows. The abbess suddenly gasps and puts her hand to her chest. Heavens above! She points to her book, and the others rapidly join her, goggling over her shoulders. The abbess runs her finger along the page, reading aloud to the others. The key of the sun was carved and embedded into a stone that became known as the Stone of Golden Mornings. It was originally placed in the east wall of the first sun temple, but it was... It is our altar! The abbess looks down again and continues reading aloud. In the year of the reciprocal ermine, it was transferred to be the altarpiece of the Sanctuary of the Peaceful Tears. The first ever sanctuary built in harmony with the followers of the moon. Oh no! Mavis, didn't you say that blood was what breaks the keys? The abbess is horrified. The ritual of autumn sacrifice! We were going to revive an ancient tradition, this equinox, of sacrificing a lamb to the sun to keep our sun god well fed for the winter to come. On the altar? Oh, no, don't worry, it has to be human blood. Animal blood won't affect the key. Yes, but Sister Lettuce is doing the honours. Oh, our moon's tits. We have to get there to stop her. The sisters all leap up and rush towards the entrance. Mavis is still horribly confused and calls after the retreating bluster. But what's wrong with Sister Lettuce? She's ruddy awful with a knife. The last time she performed a sacrifice was the year of the bent owl and she ruddy well almost took her entire finger off. Mavis runs after them. A woodland track in Shreem. It's daytime. Jem is walking along, carrying a small lamb. It is not a happy lamb. He peers ahead into a small glade and sees a beautifully carved doorway. The door has been broken and lies back askew. Beyond are beautiful flowers with deer roaming amongst them. 
Oh, I mean, it doesn't look cursed to me. He swallows and heads towards the door. The animals watch him approach. The demon monk is sitting in one of the trees, eating an apple nearby, watching him. The animals get up and slowly steal away, watching Jem curiously. They don't seem to be afraid. This is making Jem a little bit nervous. Oh, uh, show, go away. This ain't your business. Jem walks up to the altar and deposits the small lamb onto it. Ugh, bloody elves. Don't look at me like that. You're a sheep. What do you know anyway? Now, if you'll excuse me, I got some summoning to do. He brings the knife down towards the sheep and stops. The creature's eyes are staring up at him. He sighs, then screws his eyes and goes to stab the creature. There is silence. Jem opens his eyes, surprised. He looks down. There is an antler sticking out of his chest. He stares at it and then falls over dead. A single drop of blood falls from the antler and onto the altar. All hell breaks loose. The animals seem to be freed from whatever spell of peace had been holding them. The deer that impaled Jem panics and runs around flailing its horns with Jem stuck on them. The other animals panic and run screaming from the altar. The flowers are trampled. The gates fall off. Jem's body is thrown against a tree and he lies there. The demon monk steps into the broken sanctuary. He smiles. The lamb tries to run past him to escape. The monk catches it absent-mindedly and holds it, while gently stroking the lamb. Oh dear, what a mess. How far you have fallen, Shrim. If your masters could see you now, they would weep. At least you're safe, little one. He smiles at the lamb and makes his teeth grow horribly long and pointed. The lamb does not seem at all happy about the situation. The front drive of the Priory. It's daytime. The sisters of the sun and the moon are riding hurriedly as fast as their donkeys can carry them through to the woods. Inside the kitchen at the convent, it is daytime. Sister Blodwin is peeling potatoes and giving instructions to two novices. These novices are carrying armfuls of ivy and holly, wheat sheaves, and grain, and late summer flowers. Sister Lettuce is folding sheets of linen at the other end of the table. When you've done refectory, you can put a few on table like, oh, we've got to do the solstice celebrations right. I do hope that Mother Euphemia is back in time to lead the prayer. Aye, if it goes like last time you did the sacrificial rites, you won't be in a fit state to lead the prayer. That was an accident. Aye, I mean, no one would be so stupid to cut their own thumb off on purpose during an important ceremony. Sister Lettuce slams her laundry down. Look here, the wretched creature moved. How was I supposed to know it would move? It's a goat, woman. Do you expect it to just lie there calmly? and have its head cut off. If it knew its place and knew the honour that it was getting, it would. Ha! Honour. Goats are more clever than that. They know a meat cleaver is a meat cleaver, whether or not it's got flowers on it. Sister Lettuce sniffs and continues with her laundry. Hm, I'll be fine. Thank you very much for asking. 
in the gardens of the Baron's castle, daytime. The Baroness is sitting on a bench, stitching, when she sees Quinn coming down the path. She looks up at him. Ah, Quinn. Quinn bows. Good morning, my lady. Have you been hearing about these demons? Uh, a little, my lady. They do seem to be worsening. Hmm, at least I've got adamant as well as my husband to deal with invasion now. Yes, but of course. Adamant will be going away soon, I suppose. What? Away? Why? Didn't he tell you? No. Why does he want to go? Sorry, ma'am. I didn't realise. Why? I think that he feels in the way with how the Baron runs his own business affairs, and... Yes? I think that he feels there are more heroing opportunities abroad. Where? Um, anywhere. Baroness gets up with her sewing. Oh, damn that boy. He's as bad as his father. Thank you, Quinn. She stalks off unhappily. That was episode four of the Battle of the Ley Lines for the Greenlands Presents. I would like to thank the Equinanimous. I actually don't know what Equinanimous means, but um, I hope it means something nice. <laughs> thank you, Helen Glynn, for editing this episode, and the tuneful Dennis Moen for tuning this episode. It's definitely winter this end, kids. I may or may not have a head cold, so that's the thing. If you want updates, sign up for our newsletter at our Greenlands website, or check out our Instagram at the Greenlands, or Twitter the Greenlands for any updates or information. Anyway, love y'all. Thank you for the support. See y'all next time. And remember, never actually give someone your name. You don't know what they'll do with it.